0: Welcome to Blanket Fort Radio Theater, a storytelling initiative from SIU Press in collaboration with the SIU Creative Writing Program and WSIU. another sort. Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary DeNeal Chapter 1. Berger's Early Years Son of Louis and Mary Walensky Berger, and grandson of Charles and Anna Berger, Shachna Itzik Berger, later to be known as Charles, by his own account was born in Guanbeni, Russia on January 1st, 1880. Sister Rachel, who was older, gave his birth date as October 1882 and his birthplace as Kovno, Russia, now Kaunas, Lithuania. Relying no doubt on information supplied by Berger himself, military records indicate the subject was born on January 11, 1880, in Gambani, Russia. Berger's tombstone has 1883 as the year of his birth. Berger family tradition indicates that the first to arrive in America was Charlie's older brother Samuel. Fleeing Russia in 1887 to avoid serving in the Russian army, the 17-year-old wasted no time once in this country. He peddled supplies from a pack on his back. From such a humble beginning, the young man prospered enough to send first for brother Oscar and later for other family members, including his parents and younger brother Charlie. It is believed that Samuel also had twin brothers, who may have died in Russia. In the Madison County, Illinois census for 1900, he is described as a salesman and druggist, but is best remembered in Glen Carbon as the proprietor of a general store. Unlike his infamous younger brother, Sam Berger lived to see his American dream come true, and it is only fitting that Glen Carbon named a street in his honor. Charlie's own account of his early years, as gleaned from the interviews he gave reporters, fails to give credit to his enterprising older sibling or, indeed, to provide much information at all. He did mention living in New York City and moving from there to St. Louis, where he spent part of his youth. Although his family lived in various places, Charlie remembered in particular a house on the 2200 block of Biddle Street and the nearby school that he attended. Equally vivid were memories of working as a newsboy in St. Louis. It is interesting, in light of his later career, that he spoke of fights with other news carriers in the post-dispatch alley. Little is known of his family, due largely to Berger's reluctance to reminisce about the less dramatic aspects of his past. He would say in years to follow that his mother died when he was young but he failed to mention that he was in his twenties and had already served a stint in the cavalry when she passed away, November 16, 1905. His father, he said, found work as a Drayman. Lewis Berger is still remembered as being an observant Jew who never really learned to speak English. People close to Charlie got the impression that his family life was marked by a measure of hardship, thus his unwillingness to share the details with the public. The latter part of Berger's youth was spent in Glen Carbon, a hamlet in Madison County, Illinois, named for, built around, and nourished by the mining of coal. This was home until he joined the 13th United States Cavalry on July 5, 1901. Unless, of course, there is some truth to the story that in 1896 to 1897, he worked on a ranch in Montana where, as luck would have it, he managed to rub shoulders with Harvey Logan, also known as Kid Curry, and Harry Longabaugh, The legendary Sundance Kid. Sad to say, this writer has not been able to verify this tale, or quite believe it. At the time of enlistment, Berger gave his occupation in Glen Carbon as bricklayer. Years before, upon learning that the family was moving from New York to St. Louis, Charlie had been thrilled, thinking at last he would see Indians and Buffalo. But the century was too far along for that, and in any event, St. Louis was too far east. Now, as a private in the 13th Cavalry, Charlie would ride where only a few years earlier, the Sioux and the Woolly Bison had lorded over the plains. Even the names of the posts where he would serve seemed to keep alive the illusion of the frontier. Fort Meade, South Dakota, Fort Assiniboine, and Fort Keogh, Montana. A quarter of a century later, the former cavalryman would boast, Out, Out of 53, 53 guard, guard mounts, that mounts that I stood, I was orderly 52 times. It took a good soldier to be an orderly. The muster roll for the 13th United States Cavalry Troop G shows that from June 3rd until July 25th, 1902, the unit was engaged in carbine target practice, while the month of August was chiefly devoted to revolver practice, mounting, and dismounting. Earlier, Berger had twice been thrown from the back of an unwilling steed.
1: December 5th and 6th, 1901. A moderate contusion of left ankle... Anterior surface, due to being thrown from horse at Fort Assiniboine, Montana, April 24th and 28th, 1902. Slight contusion of right hip due to fall from horse at Fort Assiniboine, Montana. Both injuries were incurred in line of duty.
0: Stationed in the high plains and blasting away with an army carbine, while suffering still from falls off two renegade mounts, young Charlie Berger was living the hard outdoor life of his dreams. The muster roll reports it well.
1: The troop, consisting of three officers and 37 enlisted men, three six-mule teams and one escort wagon as transportation, left Fort Keogh, Montana at 2.30 p.m. October 18, 1902 crossed the Yellowstone River at Kelly's Ferry and bivouacked the night of the 18th at Cedar Creek, Montana. On the 19th, 20th, and 21st and part of the 22nd, the march up the Yellowstone was continued to Gold Brothers Sheep Branch above Forsyth, Montana on the north side of the Yellowstone River. On the remainder of the 22nd, the 23rd, and the 24th, The troop returned to Fort Keogh, crossing the Yellowstone River at Germania Fork and Ferry opposite Miles City. Camps were made on the outward march at McAvoy's Ranch and near Rosebud, Montana. On the return march near Rosebud and at Cameron's Ranch. Total distance of march about 105 miles. A patrol consisting of one officer and three enlisted men. One volunteer guide and one escort wagon as transportation was detached October 18th from Bivouac at Cedar Creek and set north to examine country in the vicinity of Sheep Mountain, Montana. Detachment not yet rejoined.
0: After transferred to Troop B, 6th United States Cavalry, in April 1903, Berger, along with the rest of the troop, was transported by rail to San Francisco, where from May 1st to May 4th, they performed camp duty at Presidio of San Francisco. On May 5th, they returned to Fort Keogh, Montana, via Portland on SPRR, the Southern Pacific Railroad. At the end of his three-year stint in the army, the young ex-soldier, by his own account, returned to Glen Carbon, where he stayed until 1905. But legend, fed by newspaper accounts, many of which originated with Berger himself, has it otherwise. True or not, his yarns of campfires and roundups set many a reporter to scribbling, and many a reader to a fuller appreciation of his checkered career. From branding iron to machine gun, the era slid past like painted backdrops out of play. Perhaps he did return to the West for a time. Despite its proximity to East St. Louis and St. Louis, so the story goes, Glenn Carbon was far too dull for this young man who had lately arrived from the far reaches of Montana and the Dakotas so once again charlie headed west this time to become one of an itinerant roundup crew operating out of deadwood south dakota they rode the cattle country rounding up cattle and marking them for hire some of the fellows were heard to say one day that they had been told all cavalry horses were run down cut to the bone by this insensitive remark Berger quickly let it be known that his company had considered him its best horseman When word of his brag reached the boss, he was invited to prove his ability by riding Maneater. Maneater was considered by many to be one of the meanest horses east of the Continental Divide. A regular fire-snorting dragon with hooves, this Maneater, only worse. Boasting to the eager reporters years later, Berger said,
1: I rode him until my nose bled.
0: That he could ride him proved young Charlie to the others and from then on, one of his jobs was to break outlaw horses at $1.50 a head. The worst of the lot, he said, were the Somersalters. About the only way to cure one of those devils was to smash a bottle of salt water across his brow, and then let nature do the rest. Thinking the stuff in his eyes was blood, the somersalter became instantly and miraculously cured. The horses did not carry all the scars, however, for Berger had a lump on his breast from being thrown once, and a flattened thumb from hitting an outlaw horse on the head with his fist. No less hectic was the time he spent in the boxing ring at Billings, Montana. True, he won 12.50 in the bout, but nearly half of that went for beefsteak for his puffed and blackened eyes. To go from the storied plains to the plain, unstoried prose of a pension questionnaire requires the dousing of the campfires and an end to tales, tall or otherwise. In his usual poor penmanship, Charlie, in 1916, wrote this reply to the question, Where have you lived since discharge? Glen Carbon, Illinois, from 1904 to 1905. Note that he couldn't very well say he had been out west breaking horses following the service in the Army and request a pension for back injuries incurred in the service. St. Louis, Missouri, from 1905 to 1906. Edgemont, Illinois, from 1906 to 1908. Staunton, Illinois from 1908 to 1913. For some reason, he failed to mention living in Verdon, Illinois, as revealed in the 1910 census. One Sunday morning, so the story goes, he dressed in colorful attire and rode a bucking bronco down Main Street. That wild ride may have gone unheralded except by wide-eyed boys eager to latch onto heroes. But when Nettie Sheeran and he won a dance contest, The local newspaper considered the event newsworthy enough for publication. The census also lists a wife, Edna. Another story credits him with mercilessly beating a man in a pool hall. This may have been the reason Charlie and Edna left town. That Berger did live near Edgemont during the years cited is verified by the Belleville City Directory for the years 1906 to 1907. It lists a Charles Berger and wife Sarah. Actually, they were just within the Belleville city limits, but were still considered as being in Edgemont. A small point, but not without importance. The same can be said for wife Sarah. If she was his wife, Charlie chose not to mention their marriage in future questionnaires. Marriage records from the most likely courthouses are equally reticent. What matters, perhaps, is that the couple lived in a building in French Village, where Berger claimed to have run a lunchroom it may have been only a candy store. Ralph Thomas remembered Berger as a rough, tough character who bummed in Trabin's Saloon in Edgemont. At the time, Edgemont was the switching point for streetcars traveling to and from Belleville, East St. Louis, O'Fallon, Collinsville, Glen Carbon, and Edwardsville. Located near the switch, Trabin's was ideal for accommodating the passengers, many of them miners. There, on winter days, Gamblers like Berger found likely prospects and a warm stove. Fresh from selling sandwiches and or candy bars at his place across the street, Berger would retire to Trabin's. He threw the dice, watched the money change hands, and dreamed with the best of them. Before moving to Edgemont, he had been a coal miner at a mine near O'Fallon. He had lived in Belleville then, in a rooming house at the corner of West Main and First Streets according to the redoubtable Fred J. Kern, editor of the Belleville News Democrat. Right on most things, Kern may have been mistaken when he wrote that while in Edgemont, Berger killed a man named Manny, son of Supervisor Manny. My search of the death records in the county clerk's office at Belleville for the years 1905 through 1910 turned up no record of this killing. Kern, who goes on to say, he too pled self-defense and alibied himself out of the scrape, may have been referring to the killing of William Otten, and somehow the names were confused. Charged with several killings during his nearly 50 years, Berger would say near the end of his life,
1: Yes, I've killed men, but never a good one.
0: Another of his victims, recently deceased, was being discussed at the time, but Berger could just as easily have been talking about William Chubby Otten, his first recorded victim. The year was 1908, the same year that saw William Jennings Bryan's third and last try for the presidency, but probably neither Otten nor Berger paid much attention to that. A troublesome individual, all of 26 years of age, Otten had already received a stay-away order from Belleville, after he was caught stealing some whiskey. Late in August or early in September, he had tangled with a candy store owner named Charlie Berger, B-E-R said to be about the same age. The trouble had allegedly begun over some cigars. The stage was set and the curtain drawn. On Sunday night, September 6th, Berger and Otten again began to quarrel, this time in Raleigh Roadie's lunch wagon, which was located across the street from Trabin's saloon. But for the intervention of a Mr. Keaton, the Edgemont village marshal, and Roadie himself, Otten and his butcher knife might have finished Charlie early in his career, thus saving southern Illinois much legal expense and many lives. Berger later claimed his enemy had also carried a razor, but a search by the good marshal did not reveal it. Just after midnight, Phil Traband closed his saloon and was talking with Otten on the porch, when the latter declared, I'm going over there and kill that fellow. That fellow, of course, was Berger and over there was his candy stand in the old dancing hall, just inside the Belleville city limits. Trabin tried to talk Otten into staying, but was unsuccessful. Before the saloon closed for the night, Berger and Rhody bought two bottles of beer, and Berger carried them across the street, going to the back of the candy store where both men roomed. Apparently, Sarah was out of the picture. Rhody, who arrived a short time later, was followed by Otten. When Chubby demanded one of the bottles, Berger said it wasn't his to give, an answer that did not in the least placate Otten. Following a second demand, Berger handed the bottle over, but this time Otten said he also wanted an opener. Just as Berger reached for it, Otten came at him with a knife. Expecting such a play, the candy store owner raised a conveniently placed revolver and fired a warning shot before sending the next three bullets into Otten's breast. Mortally wounded, the man stumbled across the street, only to fall dead on the porch of Trabin's Saloon. Following him by moments, his assailant ran over, viewed the body, and then gave himself up to Marshal Keaton. The next morning, the Marshal took him into custody. Finding no evidence to the contrary, one assumes that he was acquitted there by a coroner's jury on grounds of self-defense. It may be that Auten's death influenced Berger's move to Staunton, Whatever the reason for his going, there is reason to believe that he did not remain in that coal-mining town from 1908 until 1913, as stated on his pension questionnaire. In the autumn of 1927, Berger was visited in jail by the famed evangelist Billy Sunday, who at that time was conducting revival services in West Frankfort, Illinois. During the conversation that took place, the gangster said he had met Sunday 20 years before, when the evangelist was conducting a revival at Danville, Illinois. Despite the interval of two decades, neither man had forgotten the preacher's advice to Charlie, hit the sawdust trail. But both men sadly concluded that this advice had completely slipped past young Charlie. An equally significant account concerning those years of obscurity is found in the Illinois State Journal, Springfield, Illinois, of April 19th, 1928. There it is stated that several months earlier, Berger had mentioned to one of its reporters that he had first arrived in Springfield from nowhere, nearly twenty years before and had begun working at a resort on 7th and Madison Streets. I worked down the street several years ago as a bartender, he said. I didn't stay long. A little too tough for me. In those days, they said I was yellow, but now they say I'm a gunman with several notches on my gun. Not without cause, those notches. After spending some time in Christopher in 1912, he moved to Saline County, either in the latter part of that year or in 1913. With its coal mines and sizable payrolls, Saline County would be Charlie Burger's home for the rest of his life. Thank you all for listening to Blanket Fort Radio Theater. Please follow us on Facebook and visit BlanketFortRadioTheater.com to learn more about the project. Build your own blanket fort and tell a story.